This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends, feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's podcast, U.S. Vice President Mike Pence is in Canada. It all has to do with NAFTA. Conservative leader Andrew Scheer wants Canada to be energy independent. Is it possible? Is it worth it? And political parties have to be more diligent in order to fight disinformation on the election campaign. Are they ready? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, U.S. Vice President Mike Pence is in Canada today meeting with the Prime Minister uh, to talk more about all of this and the purpose of the visit. Amanda Connolly is with us, uh, national online journalist with Global News and with us now. Amanda, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. So what is the purpose of the visit? Why is the Vice President here today? So this is the Vice President's first official visit to Canada, and really the purpose of this is to walk through next steps on the NAFTA ratification process. Of course, uh, they came to a deal on that, the, the renegotiated deal in the fall, and really right now they're looking at ways to move it forward and actually find a way to implement this new deal. Uh, the ticking clock on all this, of course, is the federal election here in Canada in the fall, and the fact that Parliament rises at the end of June. So we're working with a bit of a tight time frame to try and get this done, and that will likely be one of the matters we know we know that will be one of the matters of discussion uh, up for uh, the talk today. Is that the main purpose of the visit? That really is the focus so far. There, there's a number of other topics that will be addressed as well. Right. Um, Vice President Pence mentioned uh, China during his, the, a brief press, press conference that they had just a few moments ago. Uh, the Lima Group as well in Venezuela, the situation there, as well as the state of, we know Justin Trudeau, the Prime Minister, is also going to raise the state of restrictions on abortion in the U.S., in addition to the, the purpose of the visit, which is NAFTA. So you really have kind of a number of different issues here of, I guess you could say, joint interest or joint concern, uh, although there, there may be different views on how to address those that are, that are going to be coming up today. And uh, it'll certainly be very interesting to hear a little bit more in the press conference this afternoon about how those were handled with the tone of negotiations and the talk so far here seem to be. Uh, um, getting back to uh, the NAFTA portion of this, and then we'll come back to the abortion and such. Um, uh, now that the tariffs are off, are there any issues? Is there any issues around ratification? Um, is this just like a, a dotting of the I's and crossing of the T's? Because with the tariffs removed, we were led to believe this was all systems go. Where is there issues? So I think the issues that we're looking at right now really has a lot to do with the U.S. And we heard that from Prime Minister Justin Trudeau earlier in the week saying Canada was going to really take the lead from the U.S. on this. They seem to have a lot more of the, the, the challenges the challenges in moving this forward. And a lot of that stems from the fact that in the, the U.S. midterms in the fall, the Democrats took control of the House of Representatives. That means that they now, have, they now are in the commanding position there, and that's the first chamber that deals with any legislation to ratify this deal. So to get them on board, they're raising concerns about worker protections in Mexico and labor standards there in particular, among a couple of other things as well. And so working, looking at kind of how to move forward, how to get past those partisan challenges in the U.S. is going to be, a, we would expect, a real focus of the talks 
here today and of course for Canada, the real issue here is time. We have about three weeks left as of the end of this week for the House of Commons to get through this, about four weeks for the Senate to get through as well. And so it's going to be a real race against that clock to get this done. How long is Pence here? Is there anything uh, formal, any pomp and circumstance around this visit at all? Uh, at all or is it all, uh, is it all business? Well, it's a very quick visit. He's here until about 5 or 6 o'clock this evening, and then he yeah. flies right back to the U.S. So really, it's a couple of hours here so far, uh, and they're going to be cramming in. Again, they have uh, a number of meetings here today, this afternoon, a press conference as well that we're going to be, we're going, to be going to and asking questions about at 1.45 uh, Eastern time here as well. And so they're going to be they're going to be packing a lot into a very short time frame. And of course, a lot of very high profile and complex issues as well. And so you would imagine uh, that there will have been build they will be building a lot on conversations that will have taken place already to try and uh, get as much done as possible in that time frame. All right, getting back to the abortion issue, certainly in the southern United States, this has become a, a major issue as states are reversing previous. Uh, decisions and such, or at least trying to and, and moving forward on this. Uh, how much, uh, how prevalent will this topic be in their discussions, do you think? So the indications that we're getting so far are not that it's going to, it's not going to be a, a main topic of discussion. Again, NAFTA is the, the real priority here. China and Venezuela as well would seem to be uh, issues that will come up a lot more often. Uh, but Trudeau has said that he will raise the issue of abortion restrictions with Pence it will likely come in what we've heard from other from other cabinet ministers here if there's space at the end of a meeting and that more that sort of nature of it. So more of a bit of a sideline issue than a key topic of discussion in these these meetings today. But again, if that is raised, it's not clear what progress or actual um, kind of outcome there could be from that because of course you're looking at two leaders from very different ends of the spectrum in terms of how they approach that issue and their views on it. Pence is very strongly anti-abortion and took a number of measures to that effect while he was governor of, um, of Indiana and in the United States. And Trudeau, of course, has made uh, promotion of reproductive rights and women's equality a, a really kind of key plank of the foreign policy agenda for this government. And so reconciling those two and seeing if there is any opportunity in terms of ways to come together or to address this uh, is even possible will, will be very interesting and, and I'm sure quite a challenge as well. Uh, it's interesting that that seems to be, the abortion issue seems to be go- getting more attention than, uh, for example, the issue with China and Canadian detainees. Is, is there any chatter of that or any any chatter of that, uh, talk of that being on the agenda? Yeah, that absolutely will be on the agenda. And we heard that from both leaders again today in a, br- a brief remark uh, to the media before they went into their meeting we heard from Pence saying that the U.S. pledges to continue its support for Canada, that they expect to be talking about this issue, and particularly with regard to the impact it's having on the Canadians who are detained in China right now, Michael Stavor and Michael Kovrig. They've been there since about the middle of December 2018, and have had very little, little access to consular services and, and uh, legal services as well. And so that's going to be really, we know that that's been a key issue of concern for the government is trying to get the Americans to speak out more, to, um, to, to do a lot more to try and support the Canadians in that case. Because, of course, they're, the U.S. is involved in their own broader trade dispute with China at the moment that is kind of sucking up a lot of the energy when it comes to these talks here and, and has had follow, kind of fallover implications for Canada as well. In the uh, discussions on China, do you think there'll be any talk of the Huawei CFO and the extradition process? To be honest, I'm not sure to what extent that necessarily would be raised. We know that there there has been 
perhaps you could say kind of cautionary notes made um, by Canadian officials in the past advising that it isn't, it isn't necessarily helpful to have comments like what we've seen from U.S. President Trump in the past, saying maybe he'll use this as a bargaining chip if he thinks he can get a good deal for the U.S. That, of course, it, it, it does call into question and, and jeopardize the Canadian process to a certain extent. But again, if the argument here is that this is a process entirely removed from political interference and political involvement, I would be skeptical that it would be a topic for political conversation among the leaders here. And I think that you can certainly see a case for the Trudeau government wanting to leave this very much in the legal avenue for now until there is a clear need to get, or until it clearly gets to the point of more political interference at the end of the process. It seems that uh, the China-U.S. trade disagreement is never-ending. Any reason to believe that there'll be some sort of concrete discussion on this between Pence and Trudeau uh, about how they move forward? Because obviously this is stalling out everything else in the world. I think the the issue itself will absolutely, again, come up, and there'll be talk likely across a broad range of issues that this touches on. We know that relations with China, and in particular the challenges that uh, the Canadian government and the U.S. government have had with China in recent years have gone kind of the, the full gamut from, again, trade, um, cybersecurity, military action in the South China Sea, diplomatic uh, incidents and things like that, consular affairs. So there's really a, there's so many issues that this touches on and has an impact on that I would expect you're going to see, again, a lot of those coming up, a broad spectrum of, of those talks coming here. But again, in terms of clear action, many of the issues, they're just, they're so complex and there's so many other factors yeah. at play that it's it would be unlikely to see any real decision or concrete action out of the meeting today. We know in Canada, for example, that we have an ongoing review of Huawei with regard to the 5G network and they're, they're, whether they can be a part of that. And that, again, is, is it's ongoing. We don't have a date for when that will end yet. But it, it seems fair to say it likely would not be resolved in, in, in this meeting today. Amanda Connolly has been with us, national online journalist for Global News. Make sure you're watching Global News tonight at 5.30 and 6 for more on all of this. Amanda, as always, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you. Let's bring in Henry Jasek, professor of political science at McMaster University. He is here now. Uh, is this just dotting the I's and crossing the T's, Henry? I mean, because at the end of the day, as long as the tariffs are off, we're in, are we not? Well, from our point of view, we're in, a pre- we're in a very good position. We've got the tariffs off, and actually Trump is uh, on this issue is a very weak position. And his problem is, is he wants to get the House of Representatives to approve, um, you know, approve this trade deal. But he's in this terrible fight with the uh, Democrats there and, and Nancy Pelosi, and, and, and he's insulted her, and he's walked away from an infrastructure deal. And uh, so she's basically going to say, and, and, and she's under pressure from her own members to say, okay, if he's going to play nasty, we're not going to give him what he wants. He wants to get a, you know, this NAFTA, new NAFTA deal through and he, quickly, and we're, we're just not going to do that. And so, uh, and then, and so I think the Pence uh, operation of coming to Canada is to try to put pressure on Pelosi by us asking, uh, you know, acting uh, quickly on this. Uh, I don't think that's going to work. I don't think that. The members of the House of Representatives are going to care what Canada does one way or another, but Trump's desperate right now. He needs to change the channel. So he's trying to make it look like he's building momentum here. Everybody's That's on right. board. Let's go. Yeah, so he's mm-hmm. losing. He's losing it to Pelosi, and everybody wants to talk about. And the U.S. still wants to talk about the Mueller report. All right, hang on, because I will not let you go without asking you that, because <laughs> I have to, and I, I don't yeah. want to get caught up in it yet, and not get to this though. Um, so uh, a lot of people are talking about they're going to chat about abortion, which to me is just my goodness, how, how far backwards do we have to go? Where is China and the Canadian detainees in all of this? 
Well, I don't, uh, you know, I, I, you have to feel sorry for those two guys, eh? I mean, they're lost there. There's, there's really very little we can do about it. The Chinese have lost face, uh, you know, have, have made it such that they've lost face on the, uh, on the fact that they we're holding somebody, you know, from the Huawei Corporation, uh, Chinese Corporation, and not, uh, and we're going to turn them over to the U.S. and they don't want that to happen, so they, you know. It, they, they they're embarrassed by all of that, and the, the government, the Chinese government, looks bad, and they're I I they're playing very much hardball with us. And will will Trudeau have time. the discussion with Pence like, hey man, we're caught in the middle here, we're stuck right. in this, we've got the we've got the CFO and and ready for the extradition. Meanwhile, we're caught in the middle. We got two right. people detained over there. Uh, does right. he does he have that conversation? I'm I'm sure that's going to come up. I don't know what the. Uh, you know uh what the US can do about it cuz they're in a big tariff fight you know a big trade fight with uh, China right now and we're just seeing that you know Trump going around alienating and trying to bully people has just you know has just been is really winding up to be a big failure cuz people are just not going to put up with this you just can't go around you know uh, you know Basically, you know, bullying other important people and in, in the uh, who are politically important, whether they're in the United States or outside the United States. So, you think Pence's visit to Canada is mostly about domestic politics and and getting the Democrats to get moving on this? Hey, we got Canada. I was up in Canada yesterday. They're ready to rock. Let's go. Come on. Yeah, and I think that's exactly what it's all about. I don't think. Uh, I don't think the, uh, you know, the, uh, that, that's most immediate. I'm sure he's sent up here by Trump to do that. Uh, now, now, Pence, of course, we know in his heart of hearts, when we look at him in his previous life, he was a free trader in, uh, you know, in the Indiana. Indiana is a big trader with uh, Ontario. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's always been in favor of that. So, uh, in, and the Republican Party traditionally is a free trade party. And especially with Canada, and I'm just speaking about Ontario, you know, the Great Lakes states are, are very big traders with, the, with Ontario and everything. You know, these are key states yeah. for the next election, and Trump is alienating these states by the, by his trade policy with, uh, you know, with Canada. And he finally realized he's got to get, you know, how to take those tariffs off, uh, you know, steel and aluminum. All right, I can't let you go without asking you about Mother uh, Mueller. Mother <laughs> Mueller speaking. It was like a mother spoke. Mueller speaking yeah. yesterday. Uh, do we have more clarity? Are there more questions? Does it depend who you ask? Are, are things different? Do we have more clarity after this? Well, I think he was very cl- even. I mean, re- reading some of the stuff that was in the Mueller report, I think people said, well, you know, for people who read it carefully, said he wasn't, you know, he was not exonerating the president, and he made it very clear in his ni- that nine minutes talk that he had that you know it was because he he couldn't exonerate the president because there's a policy saying the uh, you know in the in the uh, attorney general's. Uh, the office, the legal department of the government, is that we don't indict a sitting president. The only way you can indict a sitting president is to bring a uh, is for the Congress, yeah. uh, the, the the House representative, to bring a uh, you know an impeachment. Impeachment is so it wouldn't have mattered what was in that report or what Mueller found. His office does not have the power to do this. No, they, he he, and he just pretty much said, "I don't yeah. have the power to do this." It's because I can't I can't do this because our office says we, no matter what the evidence is. We are not allowed to indict a sitting president. Yeah, and that, that, he was that's very, up to Congress. I got very clear about that yesterday, and he said there's only one way to indict a sitting president, and that's 
you know, he didn't mention it, but everybody knows it's the House of Representatives bringing impeachment against the president. So he also mentioned that uh, had there been enough evidence to clear the president, he would have presented that. Clearly, there wasn't. That's Uh, right. Why is this being interpreted two different ways today? Well, I mean, the Republicans are constantly saying we've got the Mueller report. Uh, It's all, you know, there's no charges brought and we're going to we need to move on. But, of course, no charges were ever going to be brought No, because it was impossible in the first place. That's right, because there's a consensus in the attorney general's office uh, and all through the legal departments of the U.S. government is you don't indict a a sitting president. That's pretty uh, people all know that's the standard norm. And, and uh, people are not going to do that. And everybody knows there is only one way to deal with a president who breaks the law, and that is by Congress uh, impeaching him and removing him. So this was largely an info-gathering exercise for Mueller. He has now presented this to everyone. Right. Um, does, he, does he owe us any more? Does he owe, uh, you know, people who are, who are twisting words, does he, does, should he stand out and go, no, that's not what I meant, this is what I meant? Should he make it even more clear? Well, I think he was hoping by what he said that uh, inspire Congress. Well, essentially, yeah. that, that he would get con- uh, the House of Representatives off his back. But he's not going to be able to do that. Uh, we know he's going to become a private citizen pretty soon. He's leaving his job. He just simply cannot ignore a subpoena from the House of Representatives. The courts will not allow that. Uh, uh, you know, the, he he will have to, and he knows that he's going to have to answer to a subpoena. He's just playing for time, and I also think trying to show, make a case that I'm I'm really an impartial civil servant here. Uh, I really don't want to go get involved in this partisan dispute. But I think he knows, probably in his heart of hearts, it's going to happen. He is going to have to get involved. He's going to have to testify. Uh, but he's trying to, you know. Put on the view that that he really is a reluctant witness, but he I think he probably knows at this point he's going to be a witness. Uh, I I thought it was fascinating uh, uh, with Donald Trump tweeting. uh, I had you know further proof I had nothing to do with Russia helping me win the the election. Yeah, well, of course, no, virtually nobody outside the Republican Party believes that. (laughs) I mean, the evidence is. I mean, the evidence is so strong. It's right in front of us. It's been in front of us for so many years. And, uh, you know, it's a... So was it's, Mueller it's speaking... It's a question of people getting, you know, really, really more and more outraged by it. I mean, right now what it is is so many average people are worried about, you know, other stuff, and including trade stuff, which, yeah. which, which, is, which is big for a lot of people, because a lot of people are being hurt by this trade fight now with China. Uh, last question. Should Mueller have spoken up? Is that, was that a good idea? I think it was good for him. I mean, he he's trying to hold, pre- pre- present the view that he's a neutral civil servant, that he doesn't have a partisan axe to grind, and that's how he wants to remember it. He knows this is going to be one of the most important historical uh, times uh, in the United States history. He wants to go down as a person who was non nonpartisan. He did his job. He collected the evidence. He put the evidence out there. But it's now up to Congress to do the job of taking that evidence and using it uh, uh, in the way that uh, the evidence points. Henry Jasek has been with us, professor of political science, McMaster University. Henry, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Okay, very good, Scott. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. 
Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, Andrew Shear has uh, slowly started to... Uh to, uh, uh, I shouldn't say foreign policy, give po- policy speeches and reveal what he will do if, in fact, he becomes prime minister. Uh, he wants the country to be energy independent, but is that even possible? Or is the cost way too high? And why haven't we done it uh, already? Let's bring in Ian Lee, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. He's with us now. Ian, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. Uh, there's an interesting uh, uh, article in the Canadian press today that says, reality check, Sheer wants Canada to be energy energy independent. Is it possible? Is it possible? Is it worth it? Um, I think it is theoretically possible. I certainly wouldn't recommend it uh, because you want market forces to determine the allocation of goods and services. That's what produces an efficient economy. And an efficient economy, I know some people don't like that word, and they say, what about human beings? But it produces a higher standard of living. I have been around in my last 35 years teaching. I've been to a lot of centrally planned economies where they don't use market forces to allocate goods and services. I'm talking Cuba. Uh, I'm talking uh, Ukraine, Russia. Um, and uh, one thing that struck me over and over and over in the last third of a century going to these countries is that they tend to be quite poor. That is to say, the wealthiest countries in the world have a market economy. When you start allocating uh, goods and services by administrative fiat, you must sell that product to that people, those people over there in that province, then you are, you're overturning the market, and you are... Uh, introducing uh, inefficiencies into the market. We should, businesses and governments and refineries should be allowed to uh, source their oil or their natural gas, where uh, um, whichever's whatever's most optimal. Well, it's interesting in this in this article. It talks uh, one of the experts that the very similar situation to you, a professor, saying that um, you know this is not the way we've done it for fifty years. We usually yeah. just buy it from the cheapest place. Yeah. Um, which is obviously what has happened. Is that the answer here? Is there any reason to change that, or have we got to a point where it's left us vulnerable? Um. Actually, I think this this whole debate around his policy is um, looking at the wrong end of the horse, if I can use an old farm analogy, because I grew up on a farm years ago. Um, there's two components to his policy. One is the energy corridor, and the other is energy independence. I think that the energy corridor is the real enchilada. That's the real deal. That's what he really wants. Yeah. And that the icing on the cake to try to uh, encourage people to support an energy corridor and saying, oh, by the way, uh, we'll make us energy independent. It and sounds good. people, ardent nationalists, who think that that's important. Mm-hmm. I, full disclosure, I am not one of them. I just ran into somebody the other day who saw me or heard me on radio only a week ago talking about airlines and saying I couldn't care less if a Canadian airline's owned by a Canadian company, uh, owned by Canadian investors or not. And this person was berating me, saying, "Don't you? Aren't you patriotic? You know mm. what? Don't you care about Canada?" And I said, uh, "You know, on Canadian identity." And I said, "Listen, when I fly on Lufthansa, I don't speak a word of German. They're not turning me into Germans because I fly Lufthansa. <laughs> I fly on Russian Aeroflot, and I don't speak a word of Russian. You know, the idea that because I fly on a foreign carrier, I suddenly lose my Canadian." identity is nonsense. One molecule of oil is the same as the next, even if it does come from an odious 
regime like Saudi Arabia. And that's where this energy independence argument is coming from. It's appealing to those people who want to, I'm going to say something that I don't mean it to sound as harsh as it does, who want to introduce morality into the sourcing of products. And many would say, what's wrong with that? But I don't think we should go down that road where we're developing a moral calculus for every last product in the marketplace. Mm. Did they come from a good enough country? Do enough people go to church in that country? I don't know. What questions do we use to determine how good? Yes, Saudi Arabia is a nasty country. Forty percent of the countries in the world are not democratic. They're authoritarian, according to the Pew Research Center in the States. So lots of stuff comes from countries that are don't share our values doesn't mean that we're not going to buy those products so obviously the prime minister isn't turning into a socialist here he's trying to sell the energy corridor this is a line that sells well um uh, at the end of the day at the end of the day is he selling an attitude here rather than energy independence I think he's trying to uh, put a nice ribbon uh, or uh, a piece of uh, fancy wrapping paper uh, around the energy corridor uh, to make it more palatable or to motivate more people. I, I don't mean that he's trying to hoodwink anybody. I think the energy corridor, I think, stands on its own two legs. We do have pipelines. We do have railroads uh, running across the country. We do have grids, those giant electrical towers that hold the wire, the heavy voltage wires. Uh, we do have to move energy around. That, that's a reality. And, um, and we're having an awful time getting some of these uh, corridors approved or some of these rights of way approved. So I think that that stands in its own right. But I guess the people advising him in the back rooms when they were developing the policy said, you know, this is going to appeal to quite a few Canadians who um, really are angry that we're getting any oil from odious regimes like Venezuela, and it is an odious regime, or from Saudi Arabia, which is equally or likely also uh, odious. So I, I think that this was more put in as a, a sweetener, if you will, to sweeten the deal or to uh, uh, make it even more um, palatable. Ian Lee has been with us, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. Ian, as always, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. Thanks. We're talking about energy independence. The uh, the leader of the Conservative Party, Andrew Scheer, has talked about this. Uh, also talked about an energy corridor. Uh, Ian Lee of Sprott School of Business we just talked to alluded to uh, one of the reasons he's talking about energy independence is to help sell uh, the energy corridor. Let's bring in David Sword. Uh, he is an energy consultant, past chair for the Ontario Chamber of Commerce, and with us now. David, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you for having me, Scott. So uh, I guess there's two issues here, a corridor and energy independence. Let's start with energy independence. Is it worth it? Is it possible? Do we need it? Um, I would say yes to all three. Uh, Is it worth it? Every single day, and I'll speak first to oil, every single day in eastern Canada, and it varies by season, we import about 600 to 700,000 barrels of oil a day from foreign sources. Uh, just on that alone, it's several brinks loads of trucks of Canadian money going somewhere else. Just on that basis alone, that money, I would argue, is better spent here in Canada and better invested in Canada um, by having uh, an energy corridor to get our energy to our own Canadian markets. Uh, it has benefits on that alone and also the effort to get it there as well. There's a lot of economic activity associated with building of pipelines. And um, one thing... Ontario is a manufacturing hub for Canada, so the energy and the uh, manufacturing sides actually work hand in hand. When the energy front is going good, so too is Ontario manufacturing. 
Uh, this article that we're uh, quoting from the Canadian Press Reality Check, uh, Sheer wants Canada to be energy independent. Is this possible? One of the profs from Queen's University says, uh, Canada has the oil and gas uh, resources to be self-sufficient, but the notion of building a separate energy market kind of flies in the face of pretty much everything we've done economically for the past 50 years. Who cares? Does that matter? I mean, at the end of the day, we've been closing everything down in Canada, buying cheap stuff offshore from, you know, different regimes as you're talking about. Uh, Are we changing direction now? Are we now realizing that is not the way to go? Um, I think just, you know, showing what the possibility of what um, the benefits are if it does go uh, and when Canadians learn, and they do, it's a continual conversation we have. It's one we need to be having right now, and I'm glad we are. But the many benefits that go along with that, when we, the world is going to continue to use our energy or its energy resources going forward. All forms of energy are needed, but that includes oil and natural gas. Canada has the third largest reserves of oil in the world. I'm not advocating for that, but if we were just to not proceed with that, the world will still continue to use oil. Uh, The demand for it is very high worldwide. Canada is incredibly well positioned to be a provider, just for our own country, but also for foreign sources. There was a really extensive study that was done by Ipsos, and it polled countries that import their energy. And they say, should you need to import your energy, what would your top nation be as a supplier, and Canada comes up first choice unanimously. And the reason for that is, is we hold our labor standards, our environmental standards, um, our social standards, and our processes of open and transparent review to incredibly high standards. There's always room for continuous improvement, but we really stand alone in terms of oil producing nations, the way we develop our own resources. But even with things like uh, refining, many have said, why are we sending this off to be refined and, and why aren't we doing that and supplying the work here? We've spent the better part of the last several decades trying to shut down this industry. Have we not? I mean, are we not closing refineries and making it more difficult to build them? Um, regarding refineries, you usually refine the product close to where it's consumed. That's why we have a refinery center of excellence uh, in Sarnia. So much of it is refined there, and it's consumed in southern Ontario for the southern Ontario market. Uh, The same in Quebec with their refineries. Actually, Alberta refines more product than they consume um, on it as well. But typically, Scott, it's refined close to where it's consumed, and that's, that's the pattern. So uh, how would that change things if we become energy self-sufficient? Uh, There are oil refineries in eastern Canada that are refining foreign oil right now. The opportunity could be, and bear in mind, we do know it's an integrated market for North America. Sometimes it runs a bit north-south rather than east-west, but there's an opportunity of having it more run east-west for us to wean ourselves off foreign oil and um, have it consumed ourselves uh, on on a regular basis. It would take, of course, a pipeline to get it there. And there were, there was a, an excellent project called the Energy East Pipeline Project that could do that. Yeah. Um, uh, many will say you talked about worldwide consumption increasing. Many have said there's less demand. We don't need them. The other side will say that. Um, the energy, um, the uh, for, pardon for the actor, acronym, it's Paris-based, the Energy Information Agency, and that really sets the gold standard in terms of what energy use and consumption and predictions are. It calls for all forms of energy to be increasing in consumption. But look at one fuel in particular, if we could, and that is coal. 
if we export our liquid natural gas from Canada and send it to China, and China uses our natural gas versus their own coal, that has a net effect that is incredibly strong and positive on the global emissions. And if it's a global issue, sometimes it takes a global solution. Canada can be that provider of choice to help. Uh, Will it cost too much for us to get back into this, to get closer to energy efficiency? Is it worth it, or is it a combination of all? I would say if it's a solution, the answer is yes, and then you fill in the blanks as to what it is. Would this work? The answer is yes, it has to. All forms of energy, including the energy we don't use, and that's energy conservation and efficiency. Um, But still, at the end of the day, you will still need energy, uh, all forms of, of it. And the trick is to use it as wisely as possible, but also make sure it is as clean as possible. And let me point to oil. There are solutions that are occurring that are being developed right here in Ontario. And I'll use one example if I could. It's called Pond Technology, and it's based in Markham. They grab molecules of GHG and pull them out during their process, um, much like uh, a pond is the natural aquifer, it's the kidneys for Mother Nature, um, and the cleansing mechanism for water in nature. They use that same technology, of, obviously with a lot of um, innovation applied to it, and can pull um, GHGs out of emissions using algae technology. It's that kind of innovation that the world will be a path to path techno- uh, to pond technology's door once this gets developed, but they need the resources and the effort to do it. Canada is really leading the way because we spend so much time looking and being concerned about GHGs and emissions. We are much better off for it, and we're inventing a lot of solutions. We got oil out of the sand, and we're committed to getting it out of the barrel. Hmm. Uh, it seems that this the the oil industry is, is is the activists what have you have 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 successfully slowed or stalled this industry. If we're moving towards energy efficiency or an energy corridor, does this grow this industry? Therefore, not of interest to those that are that are extreme environmentalists. Mm-hmm. We live in a pluralistic society, and there's a number of views on that. But by and large, the the, the vast majority of it, um, when presented with a proposition, do you support the orderly development of our resources in an environmentally and socially um, benign way? The answer is yes on that. Um, I live in Willowdale, and I'm not far from the Finch Corridor. There's hydro lines that run along it. There's an energy pipeline that runs through it. There's fiber optic that runs through it. That is just the best use of land in terms of a true utility corridor. So it's those kinds of initiatives that I think that are being advanced that can be our solutions to uh, putting the energy in the, in the proper place. A pipe is the best place to transport energy. It's underground. It's much safer than anything on the surface. And that's the difference is why pipes are safer than, for example, rail transportation, although that's, you know, helpful and beneficial. It's because they're buried and they're in a known place. They stay stationary and they're four feet below the ground in a very visible corridor. That's the benefit of having an energy corridor, Scott. David Sword has been with us, energy consultant and past chair for the Ontario Chamber of Commerce. David, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, we have talked an awful lot about uh, uh, elections and interference, especially uh, yesterday with uh, Robert Mueller speaking out and uh, clarifying his report. 
and talking about uh, Russian interference in the U.S. election, confirming that, in fact, there was Russian interference uh, in the election. They tried to manipulate uh, uh, social media and such and uh, and picked a candidate and 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 tried to get everyone to vote for one instead of the other. Uh, of course, no collusion out of all of this and uh, no direct relation between the Trump campaign and what was going on in Russia, but certainly uh, lots of influence, outside influence on elections. Uh, recently, uh, uh, Facebook in Ottawa to answer uh, to politicians in regard to their responsibilities in securing information, people's data, and and just general control over the platform I- itself. And we heard there that Facebook will not do, uh, uh, will not continue or will not uh, remove uh, political ads that uh, that could be swaying. Although they they do say that they are flagging them, they're not going to remove. Uh, any misleading videos, but they will flag them. So where does that leave uh, uh, the Internet and social media? Who polices it? Whose responsibility is it? Is it up to uh, the consumer, to us, to educate the user, to educate themselves and make sure we know where these sources are coming from? Or what about political parties? Uh, what do what what does a political party do if all of a sudden uh, there's a campaign on uh, with misleading information? How how do they combat that? Uh, let's bring in Dr. Heidi Turek. She is assistant professor of international history, University of British Columbia, visiting fellow, Center for History and Economics, Harvard University, non-resident fellow, German Marshall Fund of the United States, and she is with us now. Heidi, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you for having me. Uh, Facebook has announced that they will flag but not necessarily remove any uh, misleading videos. There's an example uh, that's in the United States right now of uh, Democratic House uh, Speaker Nancy Pelosi where they've taken one of her videos and slowed it down a bit, which I guess makes it appear that she's slurring her words and, and that she's intoxicated. Um, and uh, the platform has said, you know, it will flag this stuff, but it believes in freedom of speech and it's going to let it go. Um, so uh, are Canadians aware of how much this is influencing what we see? Uh, I think there's much greater awareness than there was even a couple of years ago, which is already a step in the right direction. I would say, though, that uh, when news reporters started to look into whether all versions of that Nancy Pelosi video had been flagged. They actually found that there were quite a few where there wasn't this flagging saying that there was additional reporting. So we do need to make sure that we double check that Facebook is actually doing uh, what they say they're doing. So what is it uh, if Facebook, well, mind you, Facebook's a private entity and and we have to question how hard they're really trying to do all of this. Um, But at the end of the day, what can the individual political party do to protect themselves against this sort of thing? Well, it's quite tricky. I mean, there have been through Bill C-76, which is the Election Modernization Act. Uh, Minister Gould from the Democratic Institutions has tried to push this forward. So, for example, uh, Facebook will be participating in creating a political ad archive in Canada for the Canadian election. So that's at least a step in the right direction. And Facebook is participating. Google actually is not. So that's going to be one thing. And there's also a sort of threshold test of we, if um, a, a whole bunch of civil servants see that there's some attempted foreign interference in the Canadian election, they will come out and say something about that. So those are already some steps in the right direction that mean this could look very different from 
say, the previous American elections that we've seen, which made us also worried about potential foreign interference. So obviously political parties have their own online staff to generate this and, and, and try to sell their candidate. Do they now need uh, an equal amount of staff to be watching other people's stuff and, and, and just generally policing the, the, uh, the Internet and social media to keep their eyes peeled for this sort of thing? Yeah, I mean, it really is worth monitoring what is going on. And the other side of this coin is also making sure that campaigns have really strong cybersecurity. That's the other element of this. If you remember in 2016, one of the things was the hacking of the Democratic National Convention emails. The same was attempted with uh, President Macron's campaign. So that's another real part of this is making sure that uh, political parties and, and candidates have secure email or they're, they're ready for what might happen if those security aspects are breached as well and things are leaked. Uh, what have we learned here? As you mentioned, people are certainly becoming more and more aware of this. It's more prevalent. It started uh, or certainly became known to most during the U.S. presidential campaign. You talked about what happened in France. Um, are we seeing notable change because of that even today? Or is it, is it something that with technology, it's just so hard to keep up with? It's pretty hard to keep up with every time we, we put a new barrier in place. Of course, uh, bad actors will try and find a way to circumvent it. But certainly the, the companies, of course, are putting a lot more effort in than they were before 2016, right after the 2016 election. Mark Zuckerberg at one point said that it was crazy to think that Facebook ads would have swung the election like that. And he obviously uh, changed his mind there. So there's many more people working in the companies to make sure that they take down fake accounts or what uh, Facebook calls coordinated inauthentic behavior, which could be coming from uh, various foreign states. So we have moved forward with things like that. We've got much greater public awareness. It doesn't mean that it won't be a factor in the election. I think it's, it's something we have to be aware of, but certainly we've taken some steps forward, particularly in, in Canada. Can Facebook do more to police this, or is it their role, considering they're a private company trying to sell their widgets? I mean, uh, you know, I mean, we, we've heard discussion on this, whether it's preserving data, whether it's uh, or selling data, um, whether it's spreading hate, uh, the situation in Christchurch where someone live streams, uh, y you know, a mass shooting. Does Facebook have the ability to get a handle on this? This is exactly the debate that we are in right now. So as you said in your introduction, the International Grand Committee, which was a convening of MPs from 14 different countries, all met in Ottawa at the beginning of this week and uh, tried to summon Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg, the top two at Facebook, to talk about these issues. But uh, other representatives came instead. And we're in a moment, I think, where there's going to be a rebalancing. So three years ago, the question was if social media will be regulated. Now the questions are, how and when will they be regulated and what is that going to look like? Because governments around the world are saying, hang on a moment, we actually think these social media companies do bear more responsibility than we have given them in the past. And they actually do have the ability to look into the sort of ways that hate speech is being disseminated through their platforms, give us more information about that and think about ways to perhaps algorithmically reduce it, uh, remove it, or deal with it in, in a better way so that we don't see that this online hate is leading to offline violence as so tragically happened in Christchurch. So your, your feeling is that we are it's just a matter of time before this is regulated in some way? I think we are certainly moving towards that. What exactly it will look like is still very much uh, up for grabs. So will it look like the media sector? Will it look like the finance sector? Will it be something completely new? But the, the discussions are, are very strong and ongoing. In the UK, in Germany, in France, 
Australia, a few places have already passed various rules, and Canada is right in the thick of those discussions. Should social media or these companies have done more to prevent this? I mean, I'm sure they like it when there's they, they like it better when there's no regulation. Now, uh, obviously, it's sort of been the Wild West, and we've seen the the collateral damage, and and now there's there's uh, the public opinion that this does need to be to be reeled in a bit. It, it, was this a, a benefit to to these companies? Should they have worked harder so they kept one step ahead of this yeah i think there is a lot that they could have potentially foreseen so so we have to understand a lot of these companies were founded with a really utopian vision that you could build online communities and this would only have positive effects and there wasn't really a lot of thought about the potential negative effects and the way that these networks could be weaponized and that's certainly something that has led to a lot of the problems we've seen now was this sort of assumption that more communication was always going to be better and that we wouldn't end up with racists and others also instrumentalizing these networks. So that was, I think, a key problem that they realized really quite late, that there were a lot of negative effects and potentially negative externalities, too. Uh, you bring up a valid point there. Do you think that during the infancy of infancy of all this, that, that honestly, everybody just thought this would all be used for good and not evil? Uh, if you look at the original statements, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and I think a lot of this also came through things like the Arab Spring, where we saw yeah. uh, Twitter and Facebook being used to mobilize. There's a real moment of hope that these social media technologies could be used to sow democracy around the world. And, of course, that is, that has deeply changed now in the seven, eight years since the Arab Spring. Are we expecting too much from these private companies that are designed to generate a profit? Uh, is this just pa- are politicians passing the buck here? Is it time for them to stand up and do something as opposed to you know uh, leaving it up to the to the responsibility of of the company, which is obviously there for its shareholders? I think the companies do bear a large sense of responsibility. They have enormous profit margins at at this point. And if they are generating negative externalities like other industries, for example, like the chemical industry, which also has to pay for the waste removal. So we can think about whether social media companies should be investing more in content moderators, for example, to ensure that their platforms are places to have healthy and positive dialogue. But I would say just at the end that this is actually more like a tripod, right? So it's not just platform and government, it's also civil society as well and empowering uh, civil society groups to support those who have been harassed, for example, or uh, educate people. So I say there are those three elements, actually, platforms, governments, and civil you know, it's interesting because a lot of us don't think of the user or civil society part. You know, at one time, you know, if everybody has a voice, life will be great. And now we're finding what happens if everybody has a voice. Um, uh, how difficult will this be to regulate? Um, uh, and how do you know when you've got it right? It's such a great question. It is a very, very difficult balance because we also have to make sure that well-intentioned regulation doesn't have unintended consequences. For example, ensuring that we retain freedom of expression, um, that we adhere to the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, and and that we ensure that we're fulfilling basic human rights so that we don't end up in a situation where um, government seems to be censoring in any way. So it's it's really about the institutional design of regulation to make sure that we're balancing how to remove hate speech, which is illegal, uh, with ensuring that there's still freedom of expression. And so that's why there are such intense discussions right now, thinking about how we do that 
so that we don't end up with unintended consequences. What do you, where do you start with this? Where, what would be the first regulation? You're basically taking something that, that, that has been allowed, allowed to grow the way it has for, for years. What would be the first step towards that? Mm. Regulation. So obviously, Canada <laughs> has already taken a first step, which is to say, OK, we're going to regulate political ads during elections because one of the core features of a democracy is being able to have uh, an election that has integrity and that all Canadians can trust that it was a free and fair election without foreign interference. So I think we've already taken the first step there, which is securing the core of democracy, our ability to, to vote without foreign mm. interference. And then we can start to talk about um, regulatory structures. So one of the things that I've done is look at what are all the other countries doing? Are they doing things like simply enforcing laws that already exist on things like hate speech and putting the social media companies to enforce them? That's, for example, what Germany has done. Or do we need to have a bit of a new philosophy about how social media companies should operate and draw from another industry? So that's what the UK has done is said, you know, actually, social media companies have a duty of care to prevent online harm. And then a third option that we could take is what France is doing is saying, you know, these companies are doing a lot of things. We don't really understand them. They don't give us enough information. So we're going to have a regulator who mandates transparency by design so that civil society and government can see what these platforms are really doing. They have to let independent researchers in. And then the next step will be we'll figure out what regulation makes sense. So those are just some examples of options on the table that, that we can start thinking through what makes sense for Canada in particular. Uh, when we started this, we were asking whose responsibility all of this is. You talked about society towards the end here. What advice do you have for users when it comes to information? What responsibility do we have? So there's a couple of pretty easy things that we can do. One is if you see a piece of information that seems too good to be true, double check on some core news websites or listen to your favorite radio station to see if they're also reporting that. And if none of them are, it may give you a hint that it's not actually true. So cross-check your sources across different platforms is one. Um, that's a very simple thing that we can do. Uh, making sure that we don't just uh, believe something because it seems to adhere with our other values. We just question some of what's behind it. And then also that we discuss with others respectfully, which is what democracy is all about. We can disagree with each other. That's the great thing about democracy. We can debate, but we should do it in a kind of respectful manner where we also want to listen to others' opinions. So those are three pretty low-hanging fruits that, that we can do. Uh, is the public, is there enough interest in this to move this forward? Or is this something we're going to be talking about forever and very little action done? So I hope uh, and I believe that there is more than enough interest to, to move this forward. The International Grand Committee that I mentioned had MPs from 14 different countries representing over 400 million citizens. So there's just an enormous international interest in moving forward with this issue. And it's great that, that Canada is part of that group. I think there's a lot of public interest now, much more than there was uh, a couple of years ago. So that's going to be really key in trying to move this forward. I would say, though, that many of these, unfortunately, issues about things like hate speech, or terrorist speech, they're not really things that we're ever going to be able to solve. So we were yeah. talking about them 30 years ago. I think we'll continue to talk about them. But what we see is, unfortunately, the level of hate speech is really rising. So we need to figure out how do we bring that back down again? How do we put it under control as best we can? Um, and, and this might seem like a very simplistic question, but w when you're trying to police this, if and to me, this was the incident that uh, Christchurch was really the, the incident that resonated for me, bad enough 
what happened there, but the fact that uh, I think it was 14 or 17 minutes of this horrific uh, shooting spree was was streamed live uh, on social media, on Facebook. If we can't keep Christchurch off Facebook, how can we do any of this? Yeah, it's a it's a very, very good question. And it's one of the hard questions that lawmakers are asking of social media companies about whether they need to employ many more human content moderators or should they, for example, not have instantaneous live streaming, but in fact, a slight delay so that there can be some some checks and balances on the sorts of things that are being distributed. So there are actually um, it's not a simple question. It's a complex question, but there are actually some quite simple things that could potentially be done to prevent something like the Christchurch video spreading like wildfire as it did tragically a few months ago. You talked about a delay on something like this. One of the great uh, uh, one of the great attractions to social media is a live stream, is the fact that everything is immediate. And, and you know, you're thinking, my goodness, when we got the telephone, that seemed pretty immediate too. How much more immediate can we get? Does that take the shine off the pumpkin here? As soon as you put something like that in place, does immediately the appeal for this sort of forum die down? Does it drop? Well, it could just be a couple of seconds delay. So perhaps some people remember the uh, Super Bowl incident with uh, Janet Jackson. And that was a few years ago. And before that, events were live streamed instantaneously. And after there were many complaints about uh, that incident, in fact, uh, live events were were broadcast with a couple of seconds delay. So actually, there is a precedent if there's enough public outcry to just say it's a couple of seconds delay. It doesn't need to be days and days, but a couple of seconds, which would enable the social media companies to automatically look through their databases of images and things like that to see if what's being uploaded appears to be violent or otherwise contravening their terms of service. Uh, Canada obviously heads into another election this fall. How, how prevalent do you think this is going to be? How much of a, how much interference do you think there's going to be? It's a little bit hard to predict because a lot of disinformation also depends on Canada's relations with various foreign states and actors who may be interested in propagating disinformation. So it could depend a lot on what happens in the next couple of months. So uh, considering be- what's happening with China, are we done? <laughs> No, not is necessarily. That a, is, that, is that a threat? For example, we've got poor relations right now with China. Is, is that a problem? Could this add to, to this uh, whole scenario? It could potentially be a factor. So I think it's just worth Canadians being aware that this is a possibility, uh, taking on those techniques that I suggested before, just making sure that they cross-check with various reliable news sites if they see different sorts of information. Those are some easy tips. And just knowing that this is a possibility is already half of the battle because it means that we're a little bit more skeptical about believing everything that we see online at first sight. Dr. Heidi Twelrek has been with us, Assistant Professor in International History, University of British Columbia, talking about the upcoming election and what political parties have to do in order to stop, uh, I guess, extra parties, extracurricular parties from from interfering with uh, the election campaigns as they move forward. Doctor, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Pleasure to have been here. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.